Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, news from Pfizer broke this morning that their trials for COVID-19 vaccine have come out with a 90% chance of preventing the infection. What does that spell for the pandemic? We'll talk about it. Speaking of COVID-19, numbers continue to rise in the province of Ontario. 1,300 cases announced yesterday. Hamilton saw 118. London with 37. Are we going in the wrong direction here? And Joe Biden declared the winner of the U.S. election. However, Donald Trump campaign still expected to fight it in the courts. Give me some assessment as to what's going to be happening there. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, talk about COVID-19 and the impact that it's having. And, you know, the numbers are up here in Hamilton. Uh, the numbers are up in London. Uh, there's a very real concern here about the, uh, the second wave that's happening. Uh, and with all of that going on, we hear today uh, some encouraging news, I guess is maybe the best way to put it, about a possible vaccine for this. So this morning news from Pfizer uh, is that uh, their trial for the COVID-19 vaccine has come up with what they say is a 90% chance of preventing infection. So does that mean a vaccine is imminent? Well, let's get into this. Uh, Dr. Zane Shaglin joins us, an infectious disease specialist at St. Joseph's Hospital and an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us on a looks like a very active day today. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's a, what was your reaction when you heard the news from Pfizer this morning? I mean, optimism, I can say uh, in that sense, you know, there there really has not been a vaccine phase three trial that's been released to date. And, and so, you know, we've been going based on studies saying that antibody levels are good and immune responses are good. But this is the first hard data saying this vaccine prevents people from getting symptomatic COVID-19, which is the end goal of all of this in that sense. So, Cautious optimism. This is still a press release, and the data needs to be analyzed kind of by the scientific community. But if this is really true, this is the first step to to having a, a tool in the chest to actually prevent COVID nineteen. Doctor, what boxes had to be checked first to get to this point? I mean, because this, as amazing as it is, uh, you know, we were told back in the springtime, of course, that it could be a year, could be two years or longer uh, before a vaccine was developed, if they even develop a vaccine. And here we are towards the end of this year. And I, I, I agree with your, your, your perspective here. It's, it's not as if we're going to start getting inoculated next week, but uh, we seem to be a lot closer than we thought we were going to be at this point. Yeah, so I mean, I think, first of all, this is the the first analysis of this study. So the first 94 patients, and the goal was to get about 160 enrolled. There's been about 40,000 or so people. And again, it's a two-dose vaccine. So they're analyzing people after they get the second dose, because they, they assume that people aren't totally protected at the first dose. So first of all, the study needs to finish and, and go to complete fruition to show that this effect is there. The data needs to be released, obviously, and analyzed. And from what I understand from Pfizer, there is a variety of young and old and different ethnic groups within the study. So hopefully that'll be generalizable to our larger population. We need to see the safety data, and that's important considering that this is going to be probably a vaccine that's going to be rolled out to the entirety of humanity. And so we need to have a good sense of what the side effect profile is. And then we have to start talking about how to distribute this thing. I mean, this is a vaccine model that has never been given to humanity. It has a major flaw for distribution in the sense that it requires a significant amount of technical expertise to, to store. This is a vaccine that needs to be stored at minus 70 to minus 80 degrees. And for context, a commercial freezer is about minus 5 to 10 Um 
So there, there are a lot of things that need to go right for this to work. But if all of those in mind, and our federal government has actually been working on some of the distribution issues altogether, banking that this might be the vaccine, you know, if you can get this rolling out with the first doses that the government has already bought into care facilities in the next three to six months, that is a huge step forward if it works the way we plan. So, so you know, there is some optimism here. There's a number of steps, as you said, we need to go through. But if we get to that point where we can get, you know, jabs in the arm in three months in, in long-term care, that's something major to, to help with the outbreaks ongoing in our communities. You mentioned, I know, in a previous conversation, and, and you just brought it up again today, about the long-term, if any, mm-hmm. side effects that, uh, that a vaccine might have. What's the, what's the waiting period for that, Doctor? Did, you know, a day, a week, three months, to, to see if there's something that may be happening that they didn't anticipate? Yeah, there are there are standards. So, you know, we we there's attribution based on when people get the vaccine. Obviously, the sooner they get the vaccine and have a side effect, the more it seems to be related to the vaccine. As we've talked about with things like the Oxford vaccine, where we've hit a couple of interim reviews at events at three months, six months out, which may not be completely related. In, in one case, it was due to someone who tripped and fell. In another case, was someone who died of COVID that actually had the placebo. Um, you know, the longer out and the less biologically it seems like it could be tied to the vaccine, the more it gets just attributed to generalized chance. But again, there are standards in mind that, that, you know, a week or two after the vaccine, up to three months after the vaccine, where you can make some of that attribution to the vaccine versus us being alive as human beings and in, in, in this world. So, um, yeah, there are defined standards. And, and, and again, that, that hopefully is released with the data in terms of how adverse events are, are documented. And as you say, this this is still early days. I think we need to caution our listeners that uh, you know that, that this is great news, but it's it's just one more step in the process. Uh, but as as we've watched COVID develop and and manifest itself in different ways in different people, of course, uh, for those who will test positive in this, uh, at first we thought it was just a respiratory problem, and now we understand that it can have some other impacts as well. How do you how do you encompass all of that and, and okay this vaccine will look after that part of it but uh, but what about the possibility of, of damage to, to other organs and things of this nature how uh, it, it, this it must be a gargantuan task to try to find something that's going to address most if not all of the the symptoms that people have, have shown yeah i mean this is the, this is the issue right and and you know one of the the challenges of even this vaccine is you know, we don't even know what is the immune system or the immune response for people who naturally got it. Do they need to be vaccinated? Are they going to respond as well as someone who's never had COVID-19? Balancing this against, again, some of the, the long-term issues in terms of side effects. And so the answer is, you know, this vaccine is a tool. This will be used if it does work. But the research and, and the innovation towards COVID-19 is going to continue well after the vaccine goes through. We're going to be studying the long-term effects. There's going to be you know, different therapeutic study, there's going to be different monitoring of particular patients. And so this is just going to evolve and evolve and evolve. Hopefully, this is more of a discussion about a cohort that got COVID-19 and the general population that seems to have survived it, uh, and is now relatively immune. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's going to be an issue for medical systems for years to come. And, and again, all this innovation in the world, hopefully will support it. But I guess uh, the other part of good news to this, of course, is as they're doing this development and, and trying to come up with a vaccine, uh, we've also learned an awful lot about how to deal with it and how to treat COVID, haven't we? 
Mm-hmm. And, and again, the, the, I mean, it's a sustainable trend around the world. And even in our own day-to-day kind of clinical practice is uh, the use of steroids, particularly in patients that end up in hospital, has been life-saving. And I think, you know, now that hospitals know how to deal with COVID-19 patients a bit better than the first wave, we have the resources to actually, you know, give them appropriate medical care, the PPE to care for them. And knowing what therapies work rather than trying a mishmash of different therapies and hoping they work, you know, that at least has standardized the treatment such that the case fatality rate is better. It's not perfect. And and as someone over 80 that shows up the hospital with COVID-19 still has a significant mortality, but at least we know we can offer them things that are evidence-based. And again, their survival is a bit better than it was in March and April. We know that there are many, many people right now that are working on developing a vaccine. This Pfizer announcement today is, is, is the one of them. You mentioned Oxford a couple of minutes ago, and they, they had a, a bit of a stumble, as, as a couple of them did, I guess, as they go through. Uh, are, are they all working on the, on the same premise with basically the same, uh, you know, idea? I, I know what the end game is here, but we're told that they could be different vaccines depending mm-hmm. on, on exactly how that's going out. How would that roll out? Yeah, I mean, again, I think once all this data comes to mind, and we'll we'll see that you, I mean, the, the best case scenario is you get multiple vaccines with multiple different targets that might have, you know, benefits in population X, Y, maybe easier to globally administer in population X or Y. And so that the hope is, again, we just get a menu of things to pick from and say, this is the most appropriate for, for this, this is the most appropriate for this, this is the most appropriate for this, and you know, if we only have one, that's fine. Like, it's, it's at least better than none. But if we have three or four we can work with, and, and the Oxford and the Pfizer vaccines are very different in the way they work, then at least we, we start talking about, you know, how to enroll A or B or how to even give A and B to both in that sense. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting discussion. As many of the vaccines we've had up to date have been one vaccine that's made it to the market, Um but this may be the first time where we have multiple vaccines and we have, with different targets, and we have to start thinking about how to actually administer them rationally based on the data we get from these clinical trials. You mentioned what the the trials that's going on, the trial rather that's going on right now with Pfizer and, and moving into the, that stage of it, right? Uh, what about inoculation? I mean, that that was one of the big questions. I think when we were in early stages of the development here, Doctor, uh, does, is it one shot? Is that going to get you through the a season, or is it going to have to be two shots? I mean, we, do we know that yet? So, so the Pfizer trial they're doing now involves two doses. So, um, you know, that will probably be the standard twenty eight days apart if that vaccine gets used, as we have to often follow how it's given in clinical trials. Um, the Oxford vaccine, there was some data suggesting one dose and two doses are relatively similar in their efficacy, which is fantastic because one dose is a whole lot better than two. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we're gonna, it depends which target, which one works and how it comes to the market. But if we, this one, this Pfizer one that's announced today is the, the true front runner then we'll have to prepare for giving people two doses, which is, you know, a process and technically more difficult than giving them one. But again, you know, given the the implications to society and and, uh, and particularly some of our most vulnerable citizens, I think we can obviously make it work. As we've rolled out with the flu vaccine over the last number of years, uh, 
I mean, we've progressed there, and there's been a transition. I mean, you can go to your pharmacy and get, well, not this week, apparently, because of the shortages, but, but it, ordinarily, you could go to the pharmacy. Uh, the way you've described it, the way that the, this vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, is going to be developed here, and, and the way it has to be stored, uh, makes that somewhat problematic. I mean, you're not going to be able to just go to any one of five or six different locations and get your, your, your COVID shot. It sounds as if this is going to have to be a long process to try to get everybody vaccinated. Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, with that storage requirement, you're probably going to look at something like a hub model where a, you know, a public health unit or, or you know, there are certain places where the fridges are for this and mm-hmm. getting people either to come to a particular area to get vaccinated or, again, you know, sending mobile teams out with the vaccine from the hub to, you know, facilities and places and clinics and that type of thing to actually get vaccinated. So, um, and then, then doing it again 28 days later and making sure that's incorporated in. So there is a lot of feasibility there that needs to be considered as part of this. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's not going to be as technically easy as, again, throwing it in the pharmacy and saying, you know, everyone has access to it through Shoppers Drug Mart. It really is going to involve a completely different mechanism of, uh, of mass vaccination. And, uh, and again, our, our federal government has come up with a prioritization scheme to ensure that the biggest groups that need it get it first. Uh, and so hopefully that's coordinated against. But yeah, that is the one downside to this vaccine is that it is going to be harder to administer than the Oxford vaccine. I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to ask you about that as well. The, the protocol that's been established. In other words, who's, who goes to the front of the line? Is, is that done now? Have we have yeah, on that? Yeah, so, so the federal government gave gave guidance last week around this based on, you know, revising it when the new va- whenever the vaccine comes out and the data around it. But the general principles were those in congregate care facilities and those who are at significant risk of dying of COVID-19 would be first in line, which makes complete sense. Uh, and then kind of the healthcare workers and people caring for them is obviously that's the, the risk of bringing it in and, and people that are exposed to their occupations. Then moving down to people that are front facing. So, you know, police, firefighters, grocery store workers, teachers, and then finally moving out to the general population, particularly ones that are high risk of spreading within the population. And so that kind of four principle really balances you know, that if there is some scarcity to this vaccine, giving it to the people that will benefit the most from it, knowing that they're the ones that if they got COVID-19, A, rips through their institutions, but B, you know, they're the highest risk of dying from it. Um, and then, you know, working down the list to people that are less at risk and, and can live with a bit of, you know, the, the societal measures for a bit longer in that sense. So I think this will work well in that that prioritization, particularly in, in facilities like this, Um and at least that principle is in mind in terms of how to then make these distribution networks. Doctor, from what we know so far about uh, about this particular coronavirus, uh, is it going to be with us for a long, long time, or is this going to be a seasonal situation? Or, I mean, in a perfect world, you'd like to think this vaccine is going to eradicate it, but I mean, we need to be realistic here. Yeah, I mean, I, we have lots of vaccines that are incredibly effective, like the measles vaccine, yet we still see measles. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's due to not only just vaccine, but to a number of human factors, anti-vaccination movements, remote settings, the developing world. And so, you know, realistically, you know, we've had one infection in history that we've been able to eradicate with a mass vaccination campaign. There are characteristics of COVID-19 that make it even harder for this to, to be kind of like smallpox in, in the past. Um, I, I, 
I agree with you. We're probably going to be dealing with this as a seasonal illness, but with at least a significant amount of the population immunized, particularly those ones at the highest risk of dying, and the development of therapeutics, hopefully down the pipeline, it will be a manageable seasonal illness like influenza rather than a you know, catastrophic illness like uh, the pandemic has seen so far. I guess the takeaway here, I know we're just about out of time, is uh, this is good news to be sure, but uh, don't throw your face masks away just yet. We've still got a way to go. Yeah, exactly. This is careful, careful light at the end of the tunnel. Let's just say that. Yeah. Doctor, always great to get your perspective on a very, very busy day and hopefully a, 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 a progressive day, too, as far as the vaccine is concerned. Thanks so much for the time today. No problem. All the best. Take care. Take care. Dr. Zane Chagla, of course, uh, from McMaster University and St. Joe's Hospital, infectious disease specialist. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, with the, uh, the news from Pfizer that uh, they were moving on to next steps with the vaccine, uh, it, that's very encouraging. And, and, you know, we wish them all the best. And hopefully this thing is going to roll out and we're, we're all going to be beneficiaries of this. But in the meantime... Uh, we're not doing a very good job of dealing with COVID-19. Uh, the numbers are up nationally. The numbers are up in Ontario again. And the numbers are up in Hamilton and in London. Uh, new cases over the weekend. Uh, Hamilton, 118 cases. Uh, London with 37 cases uh, yesterday alone. Uh, Hamilton's running the risk of actually moving into the orange category, which is uh, not good news for us. I want to bring Paul Johnson into the conversation, the Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton dealing uh, with COVID. Paul, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, great to be with you, Bill. Thank you very much. Uh, troubling numbers. They, uh, they are. And, and you look across the province, you look in, in our community, uh, the numbers are not going in the direction that, uh, that, that we want them to be. And, and it is, again, a, a reminder amidst the, uh, you know, welcomed enthusiasm that vaccines seem to be moving along in a, a swift way that uh, we don't have a vaccine yet. It's not coming in the next few days. And we need to do everything we can to uh, to keep this virus from from spreading as rapidly as it is, and even more worrying than the overall case counts is the number of community outbreaks that we have. That is always something that uh, you know was a real hardship for us in the early part of this uh, through April and May with the number of outbreaks, and and that's uh, another tale because that means it is hitting areas where we have vulnerable people living in congregate settings, and that can have uh, devastating impacts as it already has. I, I know that uh, there's a mathematical equation that follows as to where you're going to be rated with this new system the province put out. And I know that uh, Dr. Nguyen Tran, uh, the Associate Medical Officer of Health uh, for the area, uh, has said that it, I guess it's 40 cases per 100,000 people per week. Uh, we're just below that at this stage, though, Paul. And it's the number of cases and I guess the steady increase in the number of cases that uh, that's causing the concern here. It is. And, and uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be a one-day blip, and that's why they, of course, use the averages, because you could always have some, uh, some, some episodic things occur. This is a growing and steady increase, and Dr. Richardson's been talking about this for weeks. I mean, we were at, a, a, you know, 10 or 12 a day, and then it was up to 17 or 18, and then over 20, and now into the 30s. And it just it continues to, to, to grow, and, and whether it means we bump from yellow to orange or or, or not in the near future, the reality is is that we, we have to do a better job of, of stopping this because even in these, these categories, up until you get to lockdown, uh, we're still going to have people doing things in the community, going to work, going to uh, various parts of the community. And so while there are uh, stiffer restrictions that come into place, um, they don't stop people from moving around the community. And what we're finding still is that's where this 
uh, transmission is occurring. It's in our day-to-day activities that are happening, and, and those aren't going to stop, nor should they stop. Uh, we just have to be smarter in the way that we handle our interactions with one another. Paul, when I see numbers like this, it, uh, there's a propensity, I think, for us to kind of look back at, uh, you know, either 10 to 14 days before this and say, okay, what was going on? Because this, this, the numbers you're seeing today here are probably represent somebody uh, who contracted the virus or tested positive or became par- positive maybe a week, two weeks ago now. Uh, we, we know that because of the incubation period. I, I just, I know Halloween wasn't that long ago, but I mean, uh, maybe there were parties. I don't know what's happening here, but it, we've noticed that with long holiday weekends and, and other events, notwithstanding the warnings that you and other health, public health officials have given, uh, we seem to just figure, yeah, well, what the heck, it's a holiday, let's go party, let's, let's have 30 or 40 people over to the house for a barbecue. Uh, the, the milder weather that we're having right now is probably working against us here because people are congregating anyway. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take some congregation as long as it's done safely outside, uh, yeah. more so than inside. I mean, inside is where uh, we have to be so cognizant of how many, we need to be cognizant of who, we need to be cognizant of for how long. And this is the challenge that we're running into is that, uh, yeah, we might be able to to see some things that occurred as a result of, of uh, Thanksgiving uh, in the past or maybe, um, maybe some Halloween stuff going on. I know we laid a few charges against the uh, bars that uh, were, were opening uh, uh, with too many people and also serving alcohol uh, beyond the time they were supposed to. But I think it is, uh, when I talk to our public health folks, I think it really is all the day-to-day stuff that we're doing, that we're tired of not having uh, get-togethers with friends. We're tired of not celebrating uh, birthday parties, be those for adults or for children. We're just tired of it, and so we're making choices uh, to do it. And I would imagine people are trying to be safe in those choices, uh, but clearly we're not being safe enough. And the challenge is, of course, that uh, you know many, many people work places, and so then they are are. Uh, bringing that to the workplace and and that's uh, where we're seeing a lot of these these outbreaks start is with staff who test positive um, and then we of course have to be very concerned if those for folks work at healthcare facilities or congregate living facilities uh, because the impacts on those individuals can be very very uh, devastating so I think it to me um, you know it's more about our our activities on a day-to-day basis and those are things we need to keep talking about we can always highlight the holidays but I'm more worried about what people are doing on a normal weekend, like this past weekend, um, where there seems to be just a sense that, you know, we've waited too long to do some of the things we just like to do. So we're going to try and do them anyways. Well, it's got to be frustrating for you and for others, and you know, Dr. Mackey in London and Dr. Richardson and, and others that are uh, preaching this message, but, you know, this is what we need to do. And it's not that difficult. I mean, you know, the, the social separation, of course, the distancing, wearing the mask and, and, and hand hygiene, uh, it's it's not an onerous task, but I, I don't know, Paul, that there's anybody out there who doesn't know that now, uh, which begs the question, are they just saying to heck with it, we're not going to bother anymore, is it, that, which is problematic, obviously, if they just said we've given up. I know that there's always going to be that element. They had that anti-mask thing in, in Aylmer this past weekend, and I, I don't know what you can do with those people, but the reality is most of us seem to understand what we need to do, but I, I'm not so sure that we're actually doing it now. We may not be doing it, and we may be, you know, thinking back to to old discussions around, you know, social uh, gatherings when we were really locked down from doing various things, and 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 not realizing that even if we're getting together with small numbers of people, if you add up where those people are also connecting in, you're not really getting together with a small group of people. You're actually, um, from from a virus perspective, getting together with many, many, many people. 
And I think we, we do need to go back to those first principles of, of understanding, um, you know, who we are gathering with. If it's outside of our immediate household, uh, I think we have to be all taking a very strong risk analysis. It isn't about a number. It's about the risk associated with people who aren't part of your household and our interactions with them. And whether that's at work, uh, in a break room at lunch or something like that, or whether that's in a social setting, uh, I think we, we get fixated sometimes, Bill, on numbers. Uh, I'm under 10. I'm at 6. I'm at 8. It's, it, that must be okay. And I said, well, maybe. But it could be that being together with four people, depending on where their contacts have been and how you're interacting with them, could be just as dangerous as having eight or ten people around. And that's where, you know, we may have to make decisions that indoors, even with close uh, friends and family, that we're wearing masks, uh, you know, and, and there's, well, geez, that wasn't the original piece. But maybe we need to be thinking about that because, as you say, something's not working. And this isn't um, because of one or two single events. I mean, boy, it would be really easy if we could pinpoint it and say it was this area, it was this area, or it was this activity that drove all of our cases. So we just won't do that activity. Unfortunately, uh, when we're, uh, our public health folks are, are doing their tracing, um, they're not finding it that it's one activity or one location. It's the stuff we do on a day-to-day basis. And, it, and it's all over the city. I, I'm just looking at the list here. I mean, some of them are yeah. care homes, and, and that's problematic because we know that the, the, the people in those places are high risk, and it's, uh, it's unfortunate that that's happened. But, you know, it's at Fortino's. It's, uh, a couple of schools are involved in this here, too, uh, uh, and on and on it goes. Uh, so it, it's it's got to, as you say, the numbers are the numbers, but the fact of the matter is that there just seems to be a widespread problem here trying to control this and, and, and get our act together, I guess. We seem to be diligent at one point, uh, but now we're falling back. We, we should also mention, though, Paul, and you talked about this just a second ago, if they do reclassify this area, uh, there are ramifications to that, aren't there? Uh, there are. So there will be uh, further limits placed on the things that we, we want to be able to do and like to be able to do, including, you know, dining out and, and being involved in certain activities. And so the restrictions uh, will hurt, again, uh, business, and, and we don't want that at all. And so, as I always say to folks, the best way for us to have uh, many of the things that we want to do is to recognize that things are going to be different, but embrace that, that difference because it still doesn't stop you from doing things. But really, really, it is about those times where, um, like, I, I think the vast majority, as you say, there's always a few anti-maskers, and I don't even worry about them at the moment. Um, when we go to a grocery store, we're pretty good. When we go to the pharmacy, we're pretty good. When we go to somewhere, uh, you know, we go to City Hall to pay your taxes, we're pretty good. But it's then when we get together in our own home or when we go and say, geez, I just haven't seen so-and-so for so long, I'm going to pop around and, and see them. It's only one or two or three of us. It can't be that bad. But we don't take those other precautions. We don't wear a mask. Um, you know, our hand hygiene may go down. We may be having, you know, food that's, that's you know, shared more than, than individual servings of things. And this is where I think, uh, you know, we need to tighten up a little bit. Um, I, I'm still really impressed with the way the retail side is working and, and restaurants, by and large, and only a few of the bars have been problems. But what we need to do is, I think, in our own personal world, take care of this. Otherwise, as you say, uh, we're going to be heading that back down to restrictions. And the good news is right now our hospital system in Hamilton is not overwhelmed. But uh, you probably followed the news, uh, uh, you know, over this uh, past weekend that uh, hospitals in, in Brampton and the Toronto area were actually a bit overwhelmed with patients. They had to look at redistributing patients between hospitals. That's a bad thing. 
And if that starts to happen in Hamilton, that's when the wheels really begin to, to fall off. We're nowhere near that. So I don't want to panic anybody in Hamilton, but to see it happen uh, just, you know, 30 minutes away from us in Brampton is something that's very scary. Well, it is, and it can spiral out of control pretty quickly, as you know, because we saw that happen in the first wave. Uh, is you know, it's the good news is is that you know we know more about COVID, and and the doctors and healthcare professionals are doing an outstanding job of treating people that need to be hospitalized with COVID, uh, with some great successes, and that's fabulous. But that means that those beds are taken up, uh, and if, as long as you're at capacity like that, and we were close to capacity, we're not overcrowded, but we're close to capacity with the hospitals. Uh, that that. That means they're going to have to make some difficult decisions about elective surgeries. Do they cancel those? Uh, you know, there's a there's a whole list of things here that could go wrong here, and, and, and we have to be careful of that because once you start do, going down that road, it's pretty difficult to to pull the reins up and say, okay, now let's reverse that. It is, and I think people believe somehow that we'll see this coming so far in advance we can plan and work around it. And the answer to that is you can't. Uh, these things tend to to creep up on you and they and they happen so quickly that then you are really in back into a crisis mode of you know how do we shift people around how do we accommodate surges that 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 occur and it you know as we as we know it doesn't take long for uh, an outbreak to you know to grow to a level that becomes quite concerning and we've seen that in the past here in Hamilton as well so I, I agree that we're much better positioned uh, from a care perspective, we're much better positioned in terms of handling outbreaks. But that doesn't mean for a minute it can't get away from us. And the sense that we'll have weeks and weeks of notice to see this and plan for it uh, is just not true. These things happen and change on a dime. And, and uh, that is why the best solution is to keep our number count as low as possible, recognizing there will always be these positive cases until we get this vaccine. But how do we keep that number very manageable quick contact tracing, quick follow-up, um, and hopefully, uh, you know, not having some of these larger outbreaks. That is the way that we'll be successful through to uh, when we hope in the new year that um, there will be an opportunity for a vaccination approach to, uh, to this to, to really bring us some relief finally. Paul, I know that you and, and Dr. Richardson and Dr. Tran, for that matter, and, and, and the mayor and others are, are talking consistently on a daily basis about what's going on and, and monitoring what's happening with these numbers. Is there any discussion at all about trying to be proactive about this and trying to nip this in the bud, or do we just have to put people on their best behavior and hopefully that they're going to be in compliance now? Well, certainly we've, uh, you know, we've ramped up our, our exercises in, in enforcement and, uh, you know, the days of education are over. And so enforcement is a way that we can stop, uh, you know, large uh, scale um, events, hopefully from happening. Uh, we'll do that. It is the, it is the continuing messaging. And, and I would say, Bill, that that's the challenge in Hamilton is that it's happening in so many uh, places and parts of our lives that it's, it's difficult to say, well, this is the thing that we will do. Um, you know, restricting certain things doesn't stop people from having dinner parties and, and, and getting together with friends and family in larger numbers or with a risk level that uh, shouldn't be there. So, you know, we want to be very careful that, again, we don't take an action that's actually not going to help us, but then further hurt others. Uh, we want to take the right kinds of actions. And so I think right now it is, you know, that continued uh, pressure for people to think about when they get together with people that aren't in their immediate household, you need to be thinking about what am I doing to protect myself and the person that I'm meeting with and kind of throw out these ideas that there's a magical number count that protects you. It isn't that. It's uh, who you're visiting with and who you're connecting with and how you're connecting with them that will keep you safe. 
Well, and, and it bears repeating as well that I know you mentioned there's a couple of establishments, I guess, that, you know, kind of went over the line and they've been dealt with by, by bylaw in situations, you know, where they, they're not playing by the rules. But by and large, in not just in Hamilton and London, but in most of these areas where we've seen these numbers increase, uh, they're private gatherings. They're not public places. They're not restaurants and bars. That, that doesn't seem to be uh, where this is coming from. And uh, I, I know that not too many of us are doing the contact tracing as much as we should be. Uh, but an awful lot of the people that I'm hearing now that are testing positive, Paul, have no idea where they got the virus, they, which tells you well, that means you were doing all that stuff you probably shouldn't have been doing because you should be able to pinpoint that, oh, that's somebody that was new in my circle that I didn't see before. It might be them. But if you do that 10 times a day, uh, you're increasing your risk. That's what it comes down to. It is, and and that's why, you know, I, my encouragement is to, to forget about you know, anytime you're you're out and it's not with people that are in your immediate household, and I'm talking about the people under which, under the same roof you live in, you need to be thinking through, uh, you know, how are we interacting? Uh, what am I doing to protect myself? What am I doing to limit the amount of time? Those are the, the kinds of things that will, that will help us because you're absolutely right. It is, it is in our broader day-to-day living that we're seeing uh, these possible uh, you know, is, is, is the possibility of where this is coming from for those for, for, for which we don't have a direct line to say, yes, you were, uh, you were at this location that had an outbreak, and that's where we believe that uh, you contracted the virus. Then we're, we're into these, uh, you know, a little bit of guessing games, but probably with some higher degree of probability thinking about those, those interactions. And we're seeing it in workplaces too, break rooms and lunchrooms. People are doing a tremendous job in the customer-facing side of work, but let their guard down a little bit when they're finally allowed you know, to take a take a bit of a break or they get their lunch and, and then they're interacting with some folks and, and probably for good reason, you know, thinking, geez, can I just take my mask off for a few minutes and, and give my face a break? I, we understand the, 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 the stresses and strain of wearing masks regularly for workers, but we've got to be careful at work and we've certainly got to be careful in our, in our um, day-to-day life because, you know, we don't want you know, restaurants are already restricted enough. Do we want them to be restricted more? You know, having absolute capacity limits on restaurants and not being able to sit with more than four people. You know, do we want our 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 recreation facilities to be further restricted? Because that's what happens. You know, you're going to have a, li- a limitation in the amount of time you can recreate. All those things that we don't want to happen by moving into the orange category is what we're up against for the next uh, week is really to, to demonstrate that we can do better. Well, hopefully these numbers are going to go down as the, the week goes on. Paul, as always, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to uh, spend some time with us. Really appreciate it. Appreciate the time, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center for the uh, pandemic here in the Hamilton area. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Presidential election. And uh, but uh, just after 1.30, I guess it was, on Saturday, uh, our time anyway, uh, Joe Biden was declared the winner by the media, as we mentioned. Uh, the, you know, we need to be specific about this. Uh, the official tally will not happen for another couple of weeks now. Uh, and on Saturday night, the president-elect addressed the nation. And the forces of hope in the great battles of our time, the battle to control the virus, the battle to build prosperity, the battle to secure your family's health care, the battle to achieve racial justice and root out systemic racism in this country. 
So on it goes. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, uh, refusing to concede, still uh, tweeting uh, er as early as this morning that he won the election uh, with what he calls legal votes. So what's going to be happening next? And will there be a transition of power uh, or will it be forcibly done? We're not sure at this point. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, J Jacob Nyheisel, who's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. My pleasure. I always enjoy coming on the program. What, whatever happened to the old days where they just had an election, counted the votes, and everything was fine? I, I mean, COVID happened, and certainly, uh, you know, we have to factor that in, and that's one of the reasons why there was so many mail-in ballots and things of this nature. Uh, but, you know, there's some very con uh, deep concerns on both sides here about how this process unfolded. Now, I, I guess, Professor, we're still unfolding because they're still counting votes, aren't they? They are in, in a number of states. Um, you know, I, I think the overall picture is fairly clear, but... Uh, you know, there there will be a process by which uh, things are, um, you know, examined and re-examined to, to make sure that, uh, you know, the, the kind of things that happen in a normal democracy uh, weren't tipping the outcome. I don't think they would have, but, uh, you know, democracy is messy, and we get to see it on display here. Interestingly, though, uh, you know, I, I saw the, the Trump tweet earlier today said, I won with 71 million votes. Uh, a good number of those were actually counted after election night was over, too. Uh, and I guess that's okay for him, but not okay for Joe Biden. Is that what we're supposed to take away from that? I guess. I mean, there, look, there's no reason to be consistent about these kinds of things. You had, you know, Trump surrogates in some states saying count all the votes. You had Trump surrogates in other states saying stop counting votes. Um, you know, I, I'm reluctant to think of process concerns as anything other than concerns over what's best for me and, and, and my you know side. And so I, I'm not surprised by any of this, but uh, it, it is to be expected, I, I, I suppose. But, I mean, when you look at the the analysis, and heaven knows we had enough, uh, 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 you know, information from all the commentators and all the networks over this period of time from Tuesday night right up until Saturday when uh, when uh, Biden was declared the winner. Uh, the process basically was, in all of these places where they were counting, there were observers. There was a Republican, at least one Republican, one Democrat, probably more than that in some of these situations. Uh, yet we've heard nothing about any so-called fraud or any uh, you know nefarious activity that went on for the people that were actually had eyes on the process. Right. There's certainly nothing confirmed. And look, you know, fraud happens, but it is such such a small uh, proportion of the the overall vote as to be meaningless. And it's certainly not you know, any way, shape, or form effective because it tends to be decentralized. The only way you see fraud uh, actually changing election outcomes is if there's a centralized effort at doing so, a systematic one. And, you know, somebody voting on a name that's not theirs that happens in a, you know, a random precinct isn't really all that concerning. I mean, of course, it should be prosecuted and those kinds of things, but we're really talking about a very low instance of this kind of behavior. Uh, and, and if, in fact, it does happen, as you say, on those rare occasions, I mean, it happened under the old system, it happens all the time, uh, but not with any frequency, and probably never in a situation like this with a national election uh, is it going to have that much of an impact on the outcome, uh, unless there's strong evidence, and we just don't see that. I mean, you know, it's, it's one thing for Rudy Giuliani or Donald Trump to start making accusations, but uh, even as Chris Christie uh, mentioned, the former governor of New Jersey mentioned over the weekend, if you've got something, show us. If not, you know, it's time to pack it up. I mean, in the modern era, it just it does not happen at this level. Um, you know, really kind of post-World War II, uh, you're, you're really hard-pressed to see a, a large-scale election that, you know, has so much fraud to, to, to call the, the results into a question. So, 
Uh, again, I'm, I'm not saying we don't do election forensics. I'm not saying we don't do our due diligence to, to look for anything that might be there. But I certainly don't expect to find it. My very sp- strong prior is that you know the election was carried out in a, in a manner that is above board. Let me ask you about the, what you saw happen over those four days and, and, and the, the, the way the vote went and in, in, in the places uh, that uh, that surprised, I think, an awful lot of people. I mean, we knew where the battleground states were going to be, and uh, the, up around the Great Lakes there, and, and Pennsylvania certainly did come into play in a big, big way, but as did Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, in, in, and Minnesota for that matter, too. But were you surprised at, uh, at Georgia and, and, and what, what the Democrats were able to do there? I was a little surprised at places like uh, Georgia and, and Arizona in particular. Um, you know, those were, were states that, that Trump won, you know, sometimes handily in, in 2016 with, with respect to, to Georgia. Um, and I think that you're just seeing a couple of things going on. Demographics are moving in those states. You know, Atlanta is this hub of, of development, and it's bringing a lot more blue voters in than it is red. Um, and there's also the, the fact that it's unavoidable that the, the Democrats ran a pretty good tight campaign in those places and got their people out to vote. Well, and, and of course, they always refer back to the, to the midterms. Well, Tracy Abrams, of course, in her run for governor, uh, that seemed to rally the troops. And uh, as one commentator, I guess, expressed it, uh, uh, you know, she did not win that race. She was not successful, but she never stopped uh, campaigning and coalescing uh, that mood. And so we certainly saw that. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, sustained effort matters. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one thing to, to parachute some campaign specialists in the you know, last couple of weeks of the campaign, but it's another thing to, to really build organization and networks. What about the, the way the vote went? And because we've seen the same thing happen here in Canada over the last uh, couple of elections, uh, our federal elections too, Professor. Uh, one party seems to have a great deal of support in urban areas, and, and by the, and I mean the suburbs as well, but I mean, you know, the greater metropolitan areas. Uh, you know, the, the less populated areas in this particular case, of course, seem to go Republican. Uh, the major cities uh, seem to lean toward Democrat. Is that, is that a trend that has developed over a period of time? Um, it's a trend that kind of comes uh, in and out of vogue over time as kind of the, the parties' uh, alliances and, and various coalitional members switch. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of a book I was reading that was published in the 1920s that talked about the the new divide on the horizon being rural and urban. And I think, of course, at the time, they're talking about urban political machines. But, um, you know, it is something that, that happens uh, with some frequency, and it's a fairly common divide, really going back to the beginning of the country. Uh, and we certainly saw it manifest itself with uh, what happened, especially in Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, <laughs> Biden won by a considerable margin, as it turned out. But uh, Philadelphia uh, and Pittsburgh, of course, were two of the major reasons for that to happen, and uh, the two larger urban centers. Uh, interesting divide, though, between uh, the Republican and the Democrat uh, state legislatures and, and the federal elections uh, as they were going on. Um, and uh, it's, it seemed to me, with a few rare exceptions, including some of the folks around the White House, uh, that Republicans, Democrats, are, are, were focused on the process and making sure that they got that right. I mean, even if, uh, you know, Biden was winning a particular state and it happened to be controlled by a Republican legislature, uh, I, I got the sense, Professor, that they didn't want to see this thing get screwed up because it reflects badly on them. I think that's absolutely right. and It reflects something I've been saying for a long time. You know, people have been expressing worries about the process. And by and large, election administrators, the people who run elections, deeply care about their jobs and they deeply care about getting it right and whether or not they're partisan uh, either outwardly or, or you know just happen to be partisans themselves 
they care about the process above all, and it would be the, the extremely rare case where those folks were not deeply invested in having the process go as smoothly as possible. Well, and to that point, I guess, I mean, let's face it, I guess these state legislatures are basically the ones that devise the rules uh, in their particular areas to how the election was going to be run. So it would behoove them, I guess, to make sure the process went as smoothly as possible. That's true. I mean, they, they weren't always forward thinking. <laughs> you know, I'm reminded of a couple of states that, you know, specifically barred the, the counting of absentee ballots uh, before Election Day. Um, and so that they're they didn't always think ahead in terms of what was going to, to transpire. And so I think that the reason why in some states they're still counting as well, you couldn't run them through the machines ahead of time. And, and uh, fixing that uh, would seem to, to prevent matters like this from happening in the future. Georgia apparently was going to be having a runoff. Wisconsin, I believe, will as well. Traditionally, though, Professor, do, do those, not, not runoff, but I mean recount, I'm sorry, uh, do they make much of a difference at all? No, they don't. And we actually have learned an awful lot from Wisconsin here. Uh, Wisconsin has a lot of recounts, and they historically have. And uh, they're a good, transparent state for folks like me in the sense that they make the, the recount data available. So you can see which areas are actually switching. And it's never more than a couple hundred votes moving in one direction or another. And the errors tend to be fairly random. There, there isn't a large systematic component to, to who gains votes from a recount. So, uh, yeah, I think that they'll go to a recount. Again, if, if the Trump campaign can strip together enough money to do that in the places that, that aren't automatic, um, I really don't think that much is going to change. What about the court battles? That's one of the things that uh, the White House have been, you know, talking about for quite some time. As a matter of fact, I think uh, Trump was actually quite blatant about it uh, the week or so before the election, saying it wanted this to be settled in the courts. Uh, and obviously, with his recent appointments, uh, most recent appointments to the Supreme Court, he figures he's, you know, he's he's got that kind of support. But it, it has to get to that point, does it not? I mean, in, in other words, you can't just say, I, I don't like the results. Uh, I want you guys to reverse this. I mean, there's going to have to be some legal evidence to indicate that there was some wrongdoing, doesn't there? Absolutely. And more importantly, there's a legal process that starts with the state courts <laughs> that uh, where he's not, um, you know, nominating people for the, the courts there. And yeah. So, for the most part, in the United States, most election law is state law. Uh, there's very little in the way of, of federal standards when it comes to election law. And so the state court of last resort is going to get first crack at it, unless you get a Bush v. Gore situation in 2000 election where the Supreme Court says that there are different standards being applied that then makes it a 14th Amendment issue. Is that a possibility in this case? Um, I don't know. This is the, the short answer to that. Um, you know, anytime you see different standards being applied across counties, which is not entirely uncommon, that does raise the question about equal protection. So it's not impossible to, to see uh, at least a, a slim majority of the court saying that there is a federal issue at stake here. Um, however, uh, I think that is, is somewhat unlikely. What about responsibilities and duties? What can you do during this, this, well, some people call it a lame duck period. I mean, the election's been held. Uh, there's a president-elect. Uh, the, you know, the, the guy who's in the White House right now is going to be leaving, or at least I hope he is anyway, by January 20th uh, in circumstances like that. What can President-elect Biden do, uh, if anything? And, and what is Trump and, and, for that matter, the other people in, in the Senate and the Congress allowed to do during this period? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so for Trump, uh, you know, he can use the pen as much as he wants, um, but it's going to be undone in a few months uh, anyways if, if Biden, uh, you know, when Biden comes in. And so 
Yeah, I, I think that it's not impossible to say that Biden might be able to run some kind of shadow government, either by by kind of setting the agenda and and you know getting his policy message out there. But formally speaking, there's not a lot he can do. Um, uh, but he can very very clearly undo an awful lot as soon as he takes office. Well, in sending messages out, I mean, he's already talked about uh, getting back into the Paris Climate Accord, uh, a, a couple of other things that he wants to, I guess, execute executive orders on. Uh, but even on a larger scale, though, Professor, I mean, you know, the, the, the relationship with Donald Trump and NATO, for instance, the relationship with uh, Trump's administration with the, the G7, uh, you would think that that's going to get a reboot with a, with a different administration. Absolutely. He's, uh, he meaning Biden in this case, clearly signaling to, to the rest of the world uh, the direction that he'd like to, to take the country. And you know, I think we see the, the rest of the world reacting fairly positively to that. Uh, you know, I think it was the, the leader of Australia recently, you know, exclaiming that he was uh, excited to work with the new administration. And, you know, that isn't something that you saw a whole lot of uh, with the, the Trump administration. No, the, the, I guess the, the tweet that seemed to encompass all of that was uh, from the, the mayor of uh, Paris, France, uh, who simply said, welcome back, America, uh, which seemed mm-hmm. to be the consensus, I guess, with an awful lot of the uh, the notes that were coming from uh, world leaders uh, as they saw the news breaking on Saturday. Uh, I, I, we talked about what Biden can and cannot do during this period of time. Uh, and, and as you say, whatever Trump does in a situation like this, I mean, he can fire Tony Fauci today, I guess, if he wants to. Uh, but his, I guess the message would be, don't worry, doctor, just go have a holiday, and on January 21st, you're back to work. So it's it, it's doing and undoing. And, and I know there's always the threat in a situation like this about a scorched-earth policy to say, okay, I'm going to make sure that, you know, I'm going to make it as difficult as possible. But that rarely happens, doesn't it? I mean, you know, tempers are hot right now, and emotions are, are at fever pitch right now. But do you anticipate there's going to be a cooling-off period in the, in the days and weeks ahead? Oh, um, that's a great question. Uh, no, the the norm is not to engage in any kind of scorched earth policy, but I I think that um, you know if any administration can do it, it would be this one, um, such that you know you can make uh, the the expertise that exists in the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic capacity, um, you can undercut that to the point where it's going to be very difficult to rebuild. Um, it's not impossible by any stretch of imagination. I think there's a lot of expertise that is ready to go um, at a moment's notice, but uh, you can make things more difficult, um, again, by, by undercutting that expertise. Fascinating times and uh, different twists and turns almost on a daily basis. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this, Professor. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. That's uh, Professor Jacob Nyheisel from uh, Buffalo College uh, Arts and Sciences and a political science professor at that fine institution. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.